This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. I've been looking forward to releasing today's episode for quite a while now. We have on a returning podcast guest, Catherine Glenn Foster. Catherine is one of our finest James Wilson Fellowship alumni. She spent six years as president and CEO of Americans United for Life. Right now, she is uh, writing and speaking around the country uh, on uh, a variety of different issues uh, affecting the pro-life movement. But Catherine thinks about the pro-life movement a little bit differently than um, most folks. Her focus is on all creatures and their natural births to their natural deaths. And her emphasis on the pro-life message in full, um, I think, makes her one of the most indispensable figures on the scene. She is a constitutional attorney, a mom, and a post-abortive woman. She's litigated precedent-setting Section 1983 and other constitutional questions on abortion, maternal health, all the way to euthanasia, assisted suicide, denial of medical care, malpractice, First Amendment rights, genetic engineering issues, and health care and corporate conscience protections. She is, as I said, one of the most indispensable figures uh, in the pro-life movement. And I think you're going to enjoy today's episode where we get at times quite personal, um, but I also think quite poignant. I hope you enjoy the program. Catherine, it is an absolute treat to have you on our Anchoring Truths podcast. We're delighted to have you on, especially because you're one of our uh, proudest alumni of our James Wilson Fellowship. And just to be able to uh, you know, follow your career um, since 2016, when you were one of our fellows, um, has been a special joy. I remember we, we put a big blast out when you became um, president and CEO of Americans United for Life, um, kind of as a as a as a show of uh, what we uh, really appreciate um, uh, our our fellows doing um, as far as their legal careers go, um, you were president of AUL for six years, um, including during the overturn of Roe v. Wade. What are you most proud of during your tenure there? Well, of course, it's always a pleasure to join you. Glad to be speaking today. Um, There's a lot to be proud of over those six years. Uh, The growth of Americans United for Life, the growth uh, and broadening of the pro-life movement. Of course, the overturn of Roe v. Wade, which really is, is such a sea change for the movement, such an opportunity, um, because it it took away that cap of what the political branch could do and basically left the door wide open. We can do Mm -hmm. whatever the people believe in doing. Uh, We no longer have the Supreme Court standing in our way, uh, manufacturing some concocted right to abortion. Uh, Some of the other things that we did include winning a Heritage Foundation prize for our our digital platform database that provided real-time information about legislative efforts state by state, and of course, passing the hundreds of pro-life laws that we did during those six years. Um, But when you look back at all of that, it seems huge, and it is, it seems monumental even, but what's really most important 
is the lives that were saved and the lives that were impacted. And so when we look at the actual real world impact of the overturn of Roe v. Wade, of all of the the pro-life laws that we got passed during that time, um, they saved so many lives. It's been estimated Mm -hmm. that, um, that based on, in large part, the laws that we were able to pass, that was a huge a huge reason for um, for the the reduction in the number of abortions nationwide um, that's gone down by about 25 percent since 1992. Wow. Um, wow. A large part of that is due to to good pro-life laws. And so now with Roe v. Wade finally relegated to the ash heap of history, um, we can do even more. We just need to make sure that we're bringing the American people alongside us and really, um, and really educating them about what we're doing and why and how we're going to be standing there, standing in the gap for the women and the partners and the families who um, who are questioning, what now? <laughs> what do you view as the greatest theoretical challenge for the pro-life movement now? The greatest challenge for the pro-life movement right now is simply how to, how to bring the American public along with us. We, as the pro-life movement, we believe in human rights for all human beings. We support human life, um, many of us, most of us, from fertilization all the way through natural death. Um, but the situations that we're talking about, the situations where where a woman might seek an abortion, they're tough situations. They're not always black and white. And so when you look at the reasons why women seek abortions, which by and large, at least through the end of the second trimester, are financial issues, relationship problems, and not feeling ready to be a parent, just not feeling prepared for that. Um, Now, all of those are areas where we can and should, as a humane society, come alongside women and help them, give them that um, that helping hand, that arm around their shoulders saying, you can do this. You know, you're enough. We're here with you. We will support you in what you need. However, um, so many, so many Americans, so many people know someone who's been in one of those tough situations. So many of them have been in a tough situation themselves, whether yeah. they got pregnant at an unexpected time or um, or maybe they were in school or just started a new job or there were those relationship problems or um, or maybe they, they just lost their job and they have three mouths to feed already and they're trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Those are tough circumstances. And so the messaging from the other side, from the pro-abortion side, is so entrenched, um, and it, it made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. When you look at the 1992 case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that said that women rely on abortion to succeed in American society. Uh, one of the most pernicious lies against womanhood I can mm-hmm. I can dream up. Um, but that's still the messaging that has filtered all the way up to the Supreme Court and all the way down to um, to our sidewalks. And so that's what we're countering. We're countering 50 years of pro-abortion, women need abortion rhetoric. And it's going to take some time to get back out of that. Um, We saw that in other movements in American society, um, looking at separate but equal. Um, those those years between Plessy and Brown v. Board, mm-hmm. it, it took nearly 60 years for them to correct, for the Supreme Court to correct that wrong. And then it took another um, several decades to get to a point, even today, where we can say we have made so much progress on um, on that lie of separate but equal, on that lie of, um, of division and separation. 
even if we're still not there yet. I see a similar trajectory for the pro-life movement. We are not going to snap out of this. <laughs> when when a lie gets that entrenched, we have a lot of work to do to, um, to dig ourselves back out. And mm-hmm. that takes a lot of messaging. It takes messaging from the top. It takes laws from the top. It takes protections. Um, it also takes support from the top. And it also takes support from the community, which can come from churches, from nonprofits, and it comes one-on-one through individual relationships. It takes us being there for the people in our lives, for that young man or woman, or maybe parent of a young man or woman that we know who's in one of those tough situations. And maybe they have a child who is 19, 20 years old and finds themselves unexpectedly pregnant. And we need to be there for those people in our lives saying um, proactively, if something ever happens to you where you're in a tough spot, I'm a safe place for you to come to. Come talk to me. And even if I don't have all the answers right now, I'll help you find them together and I'll walk that path with you. And I won't let go of your hand until you are ready to take a step on your own. That's yeah. what we can do. And that's one of the ways that we can um, that we can personally live a culture of life, even as we simultaneously work to build that um, at the macro level, at the national level, um, in ways that are going to um, impact even more broadly. You know, Catherine, in, in listening to your response, I, I, I almost think that I don't even need to ask you um, if there's a difference uh, between your th- uh, understanding of what's the greatest theoretical challenge the, uh, for the pro-life movement, and then what's, in your view, the greatest practical challenge, because I think you understand both of these as interconnected and perhaps the same challenge. Um, is that right? Absolutely. We have to to work on the practical. We have to, um, to, to hone messaging. We have to broaden our approach and um, and welcome the full spectrum of human rights into um, into that conversation, into that discussion in ways that that maybe we haven't before. Uh, we have to figure out how to articulate as a pro-life movement exactly what we're for, not just what we're against. Of course, we're anti-abortion. We're pro-life. We all know that. We've we've been saying that for fifty plus years. Um, but we also need to um, need to counter even more powerfully than ever before that narrative. Uh, from the pro-choice side, that we are just Mm pro-birth. When we aren't, we are pro-whole life. We want that mom, that partner, that family to feel secure. No matter how she gets to that point where, um, where she's in a time of turmoil, or crisis, she needs encouragement. She needs that that practical help, um, and we need to be talking about how to meet um, her needs, her needs and her child's needs, and her family's needs. So, talking about things like helping her to finish classes, get a job, um, about childcare and early childhood education, and uh, which of course is is just as much about educating the parent as it is the child. So, we're not talking about just popping children in a daycare. We're talking about how to build strong, functional, healthy families that are going to contribute to our communities. It's about helping mom and child through those those years of K through 12 and 
Um, and and the, the pro-total whole life viewpoint that includes things like workforce development and adult education and, and making childcare affordable, mm-hmm. all of these different things, helping people at, at the twilight of life, helping them avoid denial of medical care, helping them avoid being ushered or hastened towards death through assisted suicide or, or other um, so-called treatments that, um, that do more to harm than to, than to heal. There's so much that goes into this, and we don't all have to to engage fully on each of these things. You know, there are people who are called to work on trafficking mm-hmm. and lifting people out of the trafficking industry. There are people who are called to work um, to help serve the incarcerated community, um, people who maybe even um, uh, have been convicted and, and are on death row. There are people who are called to that. And that's a beautiful thing and helping to support their families and their kids, you know, things like angel tree. All of these are critical and we can, we can find out, we can discern where we are called to serve. And maybe that's multiple areas. Maybe it's just a couple, but it's about getting that messaging about broadening the movement so that we understand that we're not only talking about a sliver of um, of what it means to be pro-life, but we're talking about truly being pro-full, whole life. Um, mm-hmm. And it means being there for those people in our lives um, on the personal level and as we work on national and state levels uh, at the broader scale to um, to enact legislation, to defend uh, our laws that are protecting women and children. So, so it's interesting, Catherine, that you're not talking about things like where to draw the line uh, for federal legislation or where to draw the line at state level legislation. You're not talking about whether or not it's wise to um, mark off um, uh, lines of development um, you know, for the preborn person along lines of viability. Um, none of that is littered throughout your answer. It's something that last year on this podcast, <clears throat> we discussed with um, John Schweppe of uh, American Principles Project as being one of the most important you know, crisis that, crises that the pro-life movement has faced. And, and in 2023, I think so many of the, the battles that were fought were fought on terrain that was uneven at best um, for pro-lifers. Um, and they were being defined, or at least the message um, was was sort of uh, you know, being shaped around them as opposed to by them. Has that changed in 2024? Or from what you've you know, told me, do you think that uh, indeed we need to be not thinking about messaging in terms of what's a poll-tested answer to a specific question on, let's just say, abortion? What we need to be talking about is love, is welcoming human beings, is exactly what I said a couple of minutes ago, human rights for all human beings. Now, with that said, of course, there are practical concerns because every state is different and the national level is is different still. Um, you and I, we support protections for life. And so the question then is, what can we do? How far can we go to protect life? I, I don't want to draw a line and say, I support this level across the board, this gestational age, this protection, because that leaves out so many. And so I'm never going to be one to say, um, you know, let's limit ourselves to a 15 week or a 12 week or, or add in some exceptions. 
Um, I, I recognize that practically not every state is there yet. And at the national level, not every um, not every lawmaker is there yet as we return to the political branch. Sure, sure. Um, so we need to go as far as we can um, and bring people alongside us. So that may involve polling. It involves um, testing and, and figuring out where the people are. It also involves taking a stand for life and communicating a message of love and of welcoming and of, of cherishing human beings and also a message of, of tangible support. What are we going to do as a nation, as states, as communities, as individuals to stand in the gap for people? How are we going to serve? And so introducing partner legislation, um, uh, different legislation that's that's um, that's that's paired up so that we can actually say well we're trying to enact this protection and here's how we're going to support the people who are now unexpectedly pregnant because we want to get there before they find themselves in crisis we don't want people to say well i tried to get an abortion at whatever gestational age and i couldn't do it and now i'm turning to I don't know, the New York Times, and <laughs> telling my story of woe, that's, that's not the goal here. The goal here is for people to joyfully choose life, to be empowered to choose life, and as the studies have shown, not look back when they choose life to rejoice in that life. So that's what we're looking towards, um, not a, an across the board, let's, let's do 15 weeks and call it a day for a few years, we need to see where we can go. Um, looking at Idaho, for example, which a couple of years ago, prior to Dobbs, enacted a strong pro-life law, um, the um, um, the law that that basically says, unless the mother's life is, um, is in danger, um, is actually at risk, then there will be no abortions in Idaho. So the Defense of Life Act, which is... Um, which was passed in 2020, um, came into effect in 2022 after the Dobbs decision and is now going to be going up before the U.S. Supreme Court because um, the Biden administration <laughs> uh, challenged it and said, well, hang on, we want to use uh, misuse MTAWA, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, to, um, to try to force emergency room doctors to perform, in essence, elective abortions, abortions in non-life-threatening uh, situations. So looking at, at a case like that, um, looking at a state like that, Idaho is able to say, we want no abortions within our state borders. We're going to protect life and stand for both mom and baby. Other states are doing similar things um, from coast to coast. But then you have states on the opposite side of that, states like New York, uh, California, that are pushing as hard as they can, as fast as they can in the opposite direction. And so we have to recognize that. And we knew that this would happen. We knew that this would happen long before Dobbs. We knew that there would be some states that would be extremely protective of life, some states that would um, be extremely not protective of life, and many states in the middle that might increase their protections, but not to the level that we might wish at this point. So it really is about education. It's about recognizing that this is the civil rights movement, the human rights movement of our generation. And how do we do that? How are we inspired by the leaders of the past? How do we bring the lessons that they learned into this present era? And how do we stand for, uh, for all human life? 
When you go to states like Idaho, do you hear notably different emphases than what you hear when you're making the rounds in Washington, D.C. circles um, or making the rounds um, with other uh, pro-life leaders? You know, to some extent, I, I hear I hear something different. Um, I hear a heart of love. Um, when you look at a state like Idaho, talking with with the pro-life leaders there, talking with um, with the pro-life population there, and talking with just people on the street, um, there's just this there's this heart of love where they are just doing what they can to stand for life, to protect all life, and so whether that's passing um, that bill, Idaho's Defense of Life Act, whether that's standing with the people in their communities, as we've been talking about. These are people who just have servant hearts and are looking to um, to protect all human beings. Sometimes you get to uh, to other states and and to DC and 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 the language from you know from pro-lifers, the 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 focus of the pro-life community is is pretty similar. You know, obviously we're we're talking about about protection, we're talking about love. Um, but then you have you have more people, it seems, who um, who are also looking at and more practical measures. You know, what mm-hmm. what are what's the polling showing us? Um, how does this impact? Uh, how does this impact our communities? You know, let's look at the bottom line here. Um, and that's that's there's a, a place for that, but we need to make sure that we maintain that heart of love. We maintain that um, that empathy, that compassion, that grace for people in tough situations, um, the same grace that we would want if, um, in my case, when we find ourselves in situations like that, um, since I, I had an abortion myself when I was 19 years old. Um, I, I personally, I just, I focus on um, treating people as I would, would want to have been treated. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think about my own situation and what I would have loved to um, to have happen with with me um, the love that I would have wanted to have been shown um, and the compassion and the grace and the acceptance and, and the concrete plan. You know, we need um, there can be a lot of love, but we need to we need to follow that up with a concrete plan as well. And we need to actually walk alongside these people, uh, and that's sort of the point of what I was sharing as well. Where yes, we want. We want that that protective bill, but we also want to to be there inspiring people, inspiring young moms to choose life. And a lot of that takes place before she ever finds out she's pregnant. Maybe she's not even in a relationship yet, but um, but we make sure that it is common knowledge that there's a plan for her, a plan that will mm-hmm. work for her, that can be tailored to her personal individual situation to help her sort out her finances, to help her improve or get out of or do what needs to be done with her relationship, and to help her feel ready to be a parent. In my case, I was 19 years old. I was a sophomore at college, and it was a a small Christian um, private liberal arts school. And so when I found out I was pregnant in the health center, um, just back from, from Christmas break, I found out from the health center staff, and they shared no plan. There was there was no resource available to me as a, a young woman who discovers um, that she is unexpectedly pregnant with really no warning. Um, had no idea that I, I might be pregnant until I, I walked through those doors. 
And so what would have maybe made the difference for me would have been twofold. Number one, love, compassion, acceptance, grace, someone to just be that helping hand and that arm around my shoulder. If they had just said, it's okay, we're here for you. And number two, a plan, because we need plans. We need to to know what happens. We need to feel secure in our choices. So a plan that would have said, here's what, um, here's what may happen with your classes. If you need to take a break, um, take a semester off, a year off, that's okay. Here's how we'll handle that. If you don't want to do that, if you want to take a shorter period of time off or, you know, let's see how that looks, but we will support you in whatever you decide there. Here's what childcare might look like for if you're in classes in those early months. Um, here's what your meal plan might look like and your housing and all these different aspects of being a college student who's pregnant. Um, all of those, um, all of those, those aspects would have been a tremendous comfort to me. And that's something I didn't get. So whether we're talking about at the college level, as was my experience, or at a different point in life, high school, uh, in the workforce, no matter where that young woman finds herself, that's the kind of resource we need to have available and be offering to women to have that plan in place before she even gets pregnant so that she knows, oh, my friend got pregnant. Here's what happened for her. Okay. If something happens with me, I feel like I'm equipped to handle this. There are support systems out there. And so that's, um, that's a really critical part of, um, of creating that plan for our nation's young people. And that's something that, um, that so many states, as they are passing protective pro-life laws, they're also partnering that with laws that are providing those support systems, funding pregnancy centers, funding resources, so that women in need um, have their questions answered and their fears um, subside. Again, we're on with uh, Catherine Glenn Foster, a renowned pro-life leader and lawyer and former James Wilson fellow. Uh, this is uh, this is you know quite quite a personal um, uh, podcast, and uh, we of course want to be sensitive, Catherine, to um, your your personal experience. But uh, I think it would be uh, I think I think it would be just missing a golden opportunity to ask how your own personal um, experience. Um, informed your own decision to uh, make this your calling? Um, uh, does, it, does, it, does it provide for you um, the kind of comfort to know that you are sort of the example that when you offer uh, 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 suggestions and, and model legislation um, for ideas like a plan for um, you know, troubled um, young women, that you yourself can speak with the kind of personal conviction that you would have benefited from this as opposed to the false choice that I think you, um, you, you might you know, say that uh, you, you had uh, when you were 19. My personal experience informs every aspect of what I do. It's what led me to this, um, to this calling. It led me to this, to this career um, I, I did not know why I had been called to law school until I was sitting there in orientation in a talk on healthcare law. And 
I, I was so new. I, I had no idea what this was going to be about. I was thinking it'd be bioterrorism. Healthcare law is not about bioterrorism. Spoiler alert. Um, but as I'm sitting there, it was like the blinders just dropped. And everything that I had been through um, led up to that moment where it became clear. I was there to protect women like myself wow. and children like mine. So that is, um, it, it's deeply personal. It also informs everything that I do, as does, um, as do the experiences of the thousands, tens of thousands of women that I've spoken with in the 15 years since. Uh, in the last 15 years, I have spoken with so many women who shared their experiences, their regrets, how if they had known then what they know now, they would never have made that choice. If they had understood then, as they understand now, that there are resources out there, it's just not always as easy as it should be to recognize that and access them. Young women don't necessarily know. Mm -hmm. When I was 19, there were pregnancy centers out there. There were resources, but I had no idea and when I, when I Googled, uh, when I searched online to find out what you do when you find yourself unexpectedly pregnant at 19 years old, um, pregnancy centers did not come up. And that's changed a lot in the last 15, well, the last more than that years now. Um, it's changed a lot in the ensuing decades. But with that said, um, that's, that's still the experience of many women. Many young women still don't know that pregnancy centers are out there even with our best efforts. So that's an awareness issue. That's a, a, a situation where we need to make sure that we are spreading that good word of hope um, and of a brighter future where you don't have a false, a false choice, a false dichotomy, where you're choosing between uh, destroying your life um, or submitting to an abortion, right? Um, that's, that's not a good choice. That's right. not what we should be presenting our nation's young women with. So it, it is it is personal. It does inform my work. Um, but it's it's also a question of um, of of what can we do? You know, recognizing where we want to go with that end goal in sight to truly protect and cherish all human beings and to endow every human being with uh, with equal rights, or rather to recognize the equal rights that every human being is fundamentally inherently endowed with, uh, and really protect those rights. Um, but also recognizing that we have a long way to go. Uh, we're never on, on this side of eternity going to fully achieve that. And so it is a lifelong mission. And we need to be willing to take every step we can along the way. Is the law the best vehicle for bringing about a culture of life? Or are we in a period right now where other avenues are more likely to bring about that culture of life? As the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. put it, um, it may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law can't make a man love me, but it can restrain him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important also. So, as he said, while the law may not change the hearts of men, it does change the habits of men. And when you change the habits of men, pretty soon the attitudes and the hearts will be changed. 
And so there is a need for strong legislation constantly to grapple with the problems we face. He was speaking about a different, uh, about the original civil rights movement. Um, he was speaking about, um, about the situation in America in the 1950s and 60s. Um, but those words still ring true today. We do need the law. We need the law to protect um, and to stand in the gap in, in a very powerful way to make sure that there is protection there for both moms and children. Um, but we also then need to recognize um, the interplay and the, the mutual influence between law and culture. Um, because culture passes laws, right. and then the laws reflect our values. The laws are educating and shaping our ethos, and, and they're putting up guardrails on our behavior, uh, as Reverend Dr. King expressed so eloquently. And so law and culture, they really buttress each other as they rise, and they either become more humane together, uh, or they crumble together as they decay. And that's where the the generational change comes in. That's where we need to recognize that this is not a fight that will be won overnight. This is a situation where we need to be working on law and culture simultaneously, not neglecting either one because they will rise together or they will fall together. And we need the law to protect, to protect human beings um, uh, in some ways to change the hearts of men because it is an educator. Um, so many women would, uh, would not have ever considered an abortion if it had been against the law. Some mm -hmm. might, of course, but many women, myself included, would never have gone down that path if it had been against the law. And so it does change behavior. And, um, and that's powerful. It also, the law, the law, law comes downstream from law, if you will. Um, it also changes other laws. Yeah. When, when you're in a situation where, uh, where there is no legalized abortion, then we have to ask ourselves, what next? What do we do to ensure that women can still fully participate in the workforce in civil society? What do we do to ensure that there are protections, that there's you know, adequate health care for people? All of, all of the different follow-on questions that, um, that, again, help a society rise together, all these different laws working together, or fall because the um, you don't exactly want to call it a band-aid, but the the seeming band-aid or quick fix of abortion that that not that it's ever an easy out for the woman, but for a society, kind of is mm -hmm. um, for workforces. You know, you're not you're not dealing with um, with moms who suddenly have to to go take care of a sick child. Um, so. When you don't have that anymore, all of a sudden you have to take a look at the culture you're building, at the society you're building, and answer some tough questions that need to be addressed and need to be grappled with. And really, as a humane society, we should be answering in a much more uh, positive, person-centric way than we are right now. In in closing, Catherine, because uh, you know you have to you have to get back to the important work that you're uh, that you're doing. What might you like to see in the next pro-life uh, president, uh, in particular, without the need for congressional or uh, judicial blessing? Um, thinking back to the ambitious 
Lincoln proposal that you co-authored, uh, one of my one of my favorite um, proposals uh, in in recent years. Glad to hear that. Um, you know, obviously, what we want is uh, is ultimately constitutional protection, and in the meantime, and in addition, we want good, solid pro-life laws. Um, but there is a lot that can be done, even if we don't have Congress on our side. So the Constitution and the laws of the U.S., of the United States, vest the president with the executive power to take decisive and conclusive action within the domain of the executive branch. And so the next pro-life president can take such action. We've seen this before, um, even on the abortion issue, looking at, for example, the Mexico City policy, um, that policy that says that we're not going to use U.S. taxpayer dollars to promote or even perform abortions overseas. Uh, but there's so much more that can be done if we if we take a look at other um, at other um, at other departments, uh, other other um, agencies within the executive branch, mm -hmm. and simply making sure that their um, that their regulations and their programs and their policies do in fact align with uh, with an executive order directing um, protection for human life, and that could include any number of different agencies and departments. Um, Anything from um, from the Department of Commerce and Census Bureau to um, to include um, unborn children in the census, um, DOD establishing national safe havens at military and, and recruiting stations so that um, if, if there's an expectant mother and she's facing abuse or coercion, um, that she has um, she has a, a place to escape to uh, for emergency housing and financial and educational aid. Um, looking at the State Department, making sure that children in the womb aren't denied equal protection and, and multilateral <laughs> treaties and instruments with the UN and, and other treaty bodies, um, and that we're not, you know, again, paying for abortions overseas with U.S. taxpayer funds. Um, looking at HHS and all of the different things that HHS and FDA can do, um, really agency by agency um, and department by department, there are uh, actions that can be taken that would protect life, that would provide hope and recourse and opportunity. And that's exactly what the next pro-life U.S. president should be doing, should be pursuing, so that their, um, their presidency can truly be a presidency of hope and of protection for all human beings. Well, Catherine, this has been both moving and fascinating. Where can our listeners follow your work and keep up with your latest? Yeah, my website is katherineglennfoster.com. Um, Glenn with two N's. Um, I'm also on Twitter and other social media at Kate E.C. C-A-T-E-I-C-I. Fantastic. Well, thank you uh, once again. And uh we look forward to um, staying uh, in close, close, close touch and uh, keeping our eyes on every one of your moves, because it seems like when you act, uh, the pro-life movement follows. I appreciate you. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Catherine. Take care. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.